welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Was it again from 20,000 to how many millions, Reverend Atafa? From 20,000 to how many million? 18? No. From nine to 9 million, okay. In 50 years, that's amazing. And we're, we're looking today, we're starting in the book of Acts and trying to see from the book of Acts what, um, what God has for us. And uh, do you think revivals only happen in Ethiopia no. or places like Ethiopia? What should we be praying for? What should we expect? And what's at stake? We, let's pray for a moment and then we'll go on to the book of Acts. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would teach us that just as the book of Acts uh, changed Reverend Itafa's life, it would change ours, that we would experience your, your spirit very powerfully, that we would see you um, work powerfully in this church and on this peninsula, that we would have that privilege. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're still getting some uh, ring and auto. So most people form their beliefs based on their experience. But to have a biblical worldview means that you form your beliefs based on what God tells us is reality in the Bible. Would you open a Bible or an app to the first chapter of Acts? If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 909. And in this series, we'll be looking at um, just some selections from the book of Acts that I'm hoping will be helpful as we look forward to what God will be doing here. Starting at verse 1 in Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, he, he, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, he's talking about the book of Luke. Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote the book of Acts. And Luke traveled for years with Paul, the apostle, so we often look at the book of Luke, and the, the gospel of Luke, and we can say, that's kind of Paul's gospel. And um, he probably did a lot of research. I think the best guess is when the apostle Paul was in house arrest in Caesarea, that Luke probably had a chance to go and talk to other apostles and maybe even marry the mother of Jesus, because you may remember the gospel, the gospel of Luke has the most detailed uh, stories about Jesus' birth and what happened and around Mary and so forth. So my, my best bet is he talked to Mary. Um, but the first book dealt with Jesus' life. Acts concerns the development of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And so we'll look at various passages. Verse 3. To them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, for about 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus hung out with the apostles off and on. He proved to them beyond any doubt that he had risen from the grave. They'd seen him flogged, some of them. They'd seen him crucified, stabbed with a spear, put into a tomb that was sealed, and yet here he was alive. They became so convinced they gave up everything. And they went everywhere to spread the news about Jesus, who he was and what he had done. Now, they eventually, almost all of them, die 
because they believe in Jesus and they refuse to say, oh, no, no, he didn't rise from the dead. No, they're, they're convinced. They're not concerned about dying because they know that Jesus has conquered death. Now, down through the ages, lots of people have died for silly things. But people don't die for what they know is a, is a lie. They knew this was the truth, not a lie, not a hoax, and they willingly died for it because they had seen him during 40 days multiple times. It says he also taught them about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that's really next week in chapter 2 that we'll look at that. Verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, notice earlier in verse 3 it said he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God, but apparently they hadn't got it. They, they still were thinking in the way that they had actually for several hundred years in Israel that this, the Messiah was going to come back and restore the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus is t- telling them about the kingdom of God. It's much bigger than that. It's the entire world. It's all the people groups of, of the world, from this country to Ethiopia to Asia, all different people that God loves. It's not simply about the Jewish people. So they haven't gotten that yet. Jesus is in the process of, res- of renewing all things, of destroying the works of the devil without destroying us, getting creation back on track where it was meant to be. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now this is what we call the ascension. When we say the Apostles' Creed, which we do more in the first service than in this service, we say he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's something that Christians have always believed. It's right there in the book of Acts, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, constantly talking to the Father about you, interceding for you, suggesting that we should do this for you or that for you, that you would be protected from the evil one, that you would have your prayers answered and see miracles and see people um, accept Jesus, that your life would be filled with supernatural power. But then go back to verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, he says you will receive power and then he says you will be witnesses. And sometimes people separate those two. And they say, okay, I'm going to receive power. And just like we have talked about in in John, Jesus says, ask that your joy may be full. I'm going to just receive power so that my joy may be full. And then, oh yeah, and then there's going to be witnesses over here. And it's not that God never will give you something just so that your joy may be full. He loves you. And he often will answer your prayers for a sick child or a job or whatever it might be. But much more, he is empowering you to be his witness. Because it takes power to be an effective witness. Why would it take power to be an effective witness? Especially when you think of the ancient world. Why would that be necessary? Why wouldn't people just believe the apostles when they said, hey, Jesus rose from the dead and God loves you and you can be forgiven and go to heaven? 
Why wouldn't they just believe? Doesn't everyone want love and forgiveness? In his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, N.T. Wright, famous scholar, wonderful, um, thick, wonderful book, he just does a tour de force of showing how uh, the ancient world felt about the idea of Jesus rising from the dead. And basically what happened, when you, when you look at the Jewish culture, and the apostles are going to come and they say, Jesus was actually God in the flesh, and he died on the cross and rose from the, the dead. And the Jewish culture would just go, oh, no, that can't be. God is too transcendent. He couldn't possibly take on human form. He couldn't possibly die on a cross and be buried. No, that's just not God as we understand him. And they were interpreting the Old Testament in a certain way. So it was, they were incredibly resistant to the idea of this Messiah coming, taking on human form, and dying. On the other hand, the Greco-Roman world, they were resistant in a different way. They didn't have any problem with a God taking on human form. They believed gods did that all the time. But gods were heroic. They weren't going to die on a cross as a failure. And they weren't going to be claiming to be the only God. They believed in a pantheon of gods, many gods. So it wasn't like they were going to say, oh yeah, we welcome this gospel. And beyond that, there are always spiritual forces at play whenever anyone is hearing the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about how people who resist and don't believe, don't become followers of Jesus, it says literally that the devil blinds them, that the God of this age blinds them. So all of that combined means that it was going to take a lot of supernatural power for anyone to believe. The only reasons the apostles believe is they saw Jesus during 40 days. They couldn't deny it. But God, it seems like God set up the situation in the ancient world to make both the Jews and the Greco-Roman world especially resistant. That they would be... There's no way we're going to believe this stuff about this Jesus guy because this just goes against everything we've ever believed. And it's not that they weren't, it's not that the Greco-Roman world wasn't spiritual. You see, again, most people, their beliefs are based on what they've experienced. And we often think of the ancient world, we think of the people as kind of stupid and superstitious, don't we? We have what I call temporal arrogance. You do realize their brains were the same size as yours, right? And they weren't stupid. Why do you think they spent all this money on these pagan temples and went and gave the priest money to say some incantation or to make some sacrifice? Because some of the time, they actually saw demonic power at play. In Acts 16, you've got a, a slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit who, who does fortune telling and makes a bunch of money for her owners. You don't make a bunch of money if the fortune telling doesn't come true. In Acts 8, you've got Simon the magician who does sorcery and people just think he's amazing. There are other things that happen in the Old Testament, many of which show that, yeah, there, God's power is not the only supernatural spiritual power. There is also demonic power. And so people are used to that system working if they're in the Greco-Roman world, but they're not used to anybody rising from the dead, passing through walls into locked rooms, never dying again, ascending into heaven. So they're very resistant to this message, both the Jews and the Greeks. It felt blasphemous 
and insulting to the Jews, it just felt silly to the Greco-Roman world. Again, it's as though God deliberately set up both cultures, Jewish and Greco-Roman, so that nobody would believe easily. Any idea why he might have done that? So that nearly 2,000 years later, you could be pretty sure that people who were not stupid had to be convinced against their will. And the way they were convinced is apostles came and said, we are eyewitnesses. We walked around with Jesus during 40 days. We'll die for this. That was impressive. But even that wasn't enough. Beyond that, Peter, Paul, other apostles, they were, God was using them to do miracles, healing people and casting out demons. And also people just had this flooding in their heart of the Holy Spirit telling them this is true. So it took supernatural power to convince people of things that went so much against both their culture and also their experience. It would take both eyewitness accounts and powerful miracles. Would everybody become convinced? No. But there was this amazing movement that over several centuries turned the world upside down, the Roman Empire. Okay, so how does that situation apply to us today? Do, do revivals only happen in places like Ethiopia? Or China? Or the Philippines? Have they, what about us? Are we left out? What should we expect? What is at stake? Well, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson so that you'll realize that there is great reason to hope, okay? In the mid-1700s, what's called the First Great Awakening or Revival took place in Great Britain and also in what was then the American colonies. And John Wesley, whom you've probably heard of, and George Whitfield were these powerful preachers that God used, and tens of thousands of people became followers of Jesus. Even secular historians will say that Britain perhaps avoided a bloody revolution like France because of this revival. In the United States, not in the, they weren't in the United States, but in the colonies, um, Jonathan Edwards was one of the important speakers. So this happened in the um, mid-1700s. But then there was a second great awakening in kind of the, the latter part of the 1700s and the earlier part of the 1800s. And probably the most famous person in that revival was Charles Finney, a Presbyterian minister. Now, Finney had started out as a, as a lawyer, and he was reading the Bible and kind of embarrassed that he was reading the Bible, and he just kept getting this, this feeling that this was true. And finally, he turned his life over to Jesus, and this is what he writes no words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. And he began to preach. And people responded, and they repented and turned their lives over to Christ. He became a powerful preacher. Now, when he started this, the American church was not in good shape. A bunch of it were universalists, which means they believe, oh, everybody goes to heaven, and you don't have to believe in Jesus. And a bunch of them were what we call hyper-Calvinists, which you are predestined and we don't have to share the gospel because you're predestined, so don't worry about it. And Finney came along and said, every person who's a follower of Jesus, it's your, responsible, your responsibility to witness, just like Jesus said in Acts 1. Because that command to the disciples to go and be his witnesses to the end of the earth, they then passed down to others who have passed that down to us, along with the power and the authority to do that. So Finney was very much used by God. And he took that responsibility very seriously. Do you take that responsibility seriously? Have you become so, I don't know, dis disheartened in talking with people about Jesus that you've kind of given up? 
but let's not. Today we want to see what can we, what can we do to develop the kind of prayer life in this church that God would really want to pour out the Holy Spirit on this community so that we would see lots of people joining God's family. But Charles Finney ran into a lot of opposition. There's a very famous event um, because by now he's preached to thousands of people. Lots of people have, have become followers of Jesus and yet there's bad press and various things like that. And so he, he comes into this cotton mill where a lot of people are working, making thread and so forth. And this one young woman just laughs, scoffs at him, says something cynical about that. And he doesn't say a word. He just starts praying and he looks at her. And he doesn't say a word. He just keeps praying silently and looks at her. And pretty soon the Holy Spirit just comes over her. She starts weeping. The, the women next to her start weeping. It spreads through the entire thing. The owner of the mill says, we've got to stop, see what God's doing. They all gather in a big room. During the next few days, almost everybody, about 3,000 people, turns their life over to Jesus. Those are the kinds of things that happen at times during a revival. That was one of the most powerful situations that Finney experienced. Estimates go that under Finney's preaching, either anywhere from 100,000 to 500,000 People turn their lives over to Christ. As uh, Reverend Itafa was sharing, 9 million people, from 20,000 to 9 million people in Ethiopia. Um, we're going to put, there was a, so the first Great, Ex, Great Awakening or revival was in the uh, mid-1700s, then the next one, late 1700s, early 1800s, then a long one, what many would call the third one, uh, middle 1800s to uh, early, early third of the 1900s, and this would include what some of you are aware of, the Azusa Street Revival, which happened, I think it was 1906, but down in, it's, it spread from Azusa. It's really kind of what we call the beginning of the Pentecostal movement in the United States, where people experienced many more of the kinds of uh, Holy Spirit experiences that we talked about last week from 1 Corinthians 12 of speaking in tongues or prophecy or healings or things like that. So from that movement in that third one, missionaries were sent out all over the world, both from non-Pentecostals and Pentecostals, and so that now the vast majority of Christians don't live in the Northern Hemisphere anymore. They live in the Southern Hemisphere. And except for the United States and Western Europe, 70% of the Protestants outside of that area, they're, they're Pentecostal, and that came from the Azusa Street revival in the early 1900s. And then I shared with you last week that the Jesus movement, some people call it a fourth revival or awakening, 1960 to 1980, and that's when I turned my life over to Jesus, and I had a tremendous thrill today for the second time. Um, I was standing out there greeting people after the first service, and this happened a year or two ago also, but um, the guy that uh, in 1969 preached when I became a Christian, he was here visiting this morning, so Ron Sadlow, he's retired now, but uh, it was at a Young Life camp, and um, so very exciting for me to get to say thank you again. Um, many missionaries happened during, were sent out during the third one. Let's go back one. Yeah, good move. Um, during this one, lots of missionary agencies started. Uh, some of the younger missionary agencies, I think, like YWAM probably started here, but many philanthropic situ uh, organizations. Humanity was just blessed by each one of these revivals. And yet there then in the United States has been these gaps between them. You think maybe God, you see the question marks up there? I think maybe God would want to do it again. In 1971, Time Magazine published an article about that, the one, the Jesus movement, 
says, if any one mark clearly identifies them, talking about people like me who became followers of Jesus during that time, it is their total belief in an awesome, supernatural Jesus Christ. Not just a marvelous man who lived 2,000 years ago, but a living God who is both Savior and Judge, the ruler of their destinies. Their lives revolve around the necessity for an intense personal relationship with that Jesus and the belief that such a relationship should condition every human life. They act as if divine intervention guides their every movement and can be counted on to solve every problem. I'm a product of the Jesus movement. That statement describes me and how I feel. Does it describe you? Is that how you feel about God and about life? This amazing, awesome, supernatural Jesus Christ. Now, the different awakenings or revivals, they were not all the same. Some were more Pentecostal than others. Some lasted longer than others. Some more people than others uh, turned their lives over to Jesus. They think that millions of people joined churches during that third awakening that we don't hear much about. But in each one, the Holy Spirit came upon people, and people had profound, deeply moving experiences of God's presence and his love and his forgiveness. Undeniable experiences of God's presence and his love and his forgiveness. Amen. Have you ever experienced that? Charles Finney also went on to say that not only did he have that experience for himself, but he found it sweeter to talk with people about Jesus and have the privilege of seeing them become part of God's family than he was an attorney. He could have made lots of money. Just, that doesn't even compare, he said. Have you had that experience? Would you like that experience? Have you taken Jesus' command to be witnesses to the ends of the earth? Have you taken it seriously? Do you see it as a burden or do you see it as an adventure? Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. How much power have you been given? All that you need. Why are you maybe not experiencing more power, more answered prayers, more people responding when you tell them about Jesus? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the power is there. And in one of the other commissions, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So how much authority do you have? All you need. Now, understand that authority, we don't talk about it much in our culture, but it is a huge issue. Everybody thinks that who has the authority to decide what's right and wrong? The individual. Actually, a biblical worldview says reality is objective. The individual doesn't get to decide. Good and evil flow out of the heart, the character of God. They don't change willy-nilly. But what's interesting is much of this was the same in the ancient world. In addition, I shared with you, I think it was two weeks ago, that for my money, the devil's greatest weapon is not things like the persecution that uh, Reverend Tafa experienced in Ethiopia, the church grew from 20,000 to 8 or 9 million. The greatest weapon, I think, is prosperity. But don't despair. The Roman Empire in Paul's day was the most prosperous ever to date of any empire or nation, and yet the Holy Spirit broke through. 
And we can see that again, just as we've seen four revivals or awakenings in this country, we can see it again. Charles Finney became convinced that revival occurs where God's people have been praying fervently for it to occur. So why are we not sometimes experiencing more power, more results in our talking to people about Jesus? Well, maybe we're just not praying. We need as a church and as a community, all the churches, to develop a passion for praying regularly, perhaps daily, for revival here that could spread to the nation just as it did from Azusa Street back in the early 1900s. What should we expect? Well, God will answer the prayer. Sometimes it takes years. There were missionaries in Ethiopia for many years before this amazing revival took place. Um, There were other Ethiopians who were Christians for many years praying before it took place. But as you can see from our history, we've already had four. Wouldn't it be wonderful to get to be part of another one? Wouldn't that be fantastic if sometime in the next year God just started making your friends very eager to hear about Jesus and responsive? Wouldn't that be more sweet than anything else? So I only have one question for you today, and one, one, here's what I'm asking you to do. Will you, will you commit to praying regularly for the Holy Spirit to be poured out, not just in this church, but on the whole peninsula, maybe the whole country, that we would have the privilege of seeing another revival. God's done it before. I believe he would love to do it again. He may just be waiting for us to pray more. When I was in elementary school, I'd go up to somebody and say, hey, will you chase me? And then they'd chase me, and I'd run around the swing set and up into the monkey bars, and then they'd finally touch me, and then it was my turn to chase them. Loved being chased. Everybody loves being chased. We had a game where we would, we'd be in this rectangle, and when you tag somebody, then they join hands with you, and, you became, and then you tag somebody else, they join hands, and you became a big net chasing people. And it was a blast. You, it was fun to be part of the net. It was fun to be chased. People loved it. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee early in his ministry, and he sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea because they're fishermen. He says, what's he say? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And their lives are never the same. They become part of the net with Jesus. He's been chasing them. They become part of the net, and they have this fantastic adventure. Would you like an adventure? That's what God has for you. It's not a burden. It's an adventure. Nothing else compares to it. Charles Finney knew it. Many of you know it. I know because I've talked to you about it. It's my hope and prayer that we will, God will give this church a wonderful season of revival. That will impact the entire peninsula, maybe even the the nation. Will you pray regularly for the Holy Spirit to do that? Let's pray now. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would build in us the life pattern of praying every day or almost every day. Fervently. Because we care about our neighbors and our colleagues and our fellow students of praying fervently for you to come and work powerfully and supernaturally to break through the barriers and win hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. 
For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.